You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode number 142 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Katie Grubbs. Hello, friends. Hi. Hello. So we're going to go ahead and introduce ourselves for anybody who might be new to the program. So Katie, why don't you start? Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I am adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University uh, in Houston, Texas, and I live in Sugar Land, Texas with David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. Victoria? Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, also of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, And during the day, I spend my time as operations manager of an Atlanta fintech startup that supports women entrepreneurs. Uh, And one of my favorite hobbies is to be on this show, and I'm very excited to talk about one of my very favorite historical people today. Me too. I'm so excited that we're finally doing a, a show on Julian of Norwich. I'm uh, Christina Bieber Lake, and I teach English at Wheaton College. And I have loved uh, this theologian, writer, mystic, whatever you want to call her, for a really long time. And I'm sitting in the sun. It's about 50 degrees here, which is great for Illinois, where I live. And I've got my dog, Princeton, stuck behind my back. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable, but we'll, we'll get it done. All right, so I'm going to open our conversation with a little bit of a longer section, the knowing section that we usually do on this show, just so that we can have some background on this amazing medieval woman. And everything that I am going to say is, has take, has been taken from Father John Julian's 2009 book, The Complete Julian of Norwich, which of course is not the only thing written about her, but I have found it to be one of the most convincing and thoroughly researched things that I've read about her. And of course, like many medieval women, we just don't know much about her identity. We don't know with certainty much about her. Father John Julian believes that she was born Julian Erpingham to a nearby wealthy family and that she was actually twice widowed and had three children, all before she became an anchorite. And he believes that the church was named after her and not the other way around. Because sometimes, uh, and both of these are common in anchorite situations, either the church is named after the anchorite or the anchorite is named after the church. And according to Father John Julian, he says, quote, it is strongly unlikely that she could have remained simply a wealthy widow, since the king had the power to require a widow under 60 to marry in order to keep her wealth in circulation. So in 14th century England, he writes, Julian faced four choices, a third marriage, the position of a secular vowess under vows of chastity but living in the world, entering a convent or being enclosed as an anchorite. Given her experience with the revelations and her obvious personal religious devotion, it would seem that anchorite status would have been the most attractive alternative. 
end quote. So those are not the best choices that we expect from the 21st century, but this is medieval England. And if he's correct about his research and her previous marriage, she had her marriages, she had her visions before she became an anchorite, was not a nun, and was a mother of three children. And when you think about it, this actually makes sense, giving her radical choice to call Jesus a mother and give him feminine attributes, feminine attributes, as we were going to talk about. So another important thing is the unlettered claim at the beginning of the book, where Julian says, I'm unlettered. And in Middle English, the word is actually lewd, L-E-W-D, which is interesting. Um, but the claim could mean several things, and I think it's important to point out it could just be a humility trope. Or it could be that she didn't know Latin, or that she could read English but not write it, at least not at the time of her visions. And so most scholars agree that she dictated her visions to an amanuensis. Um, but I personally think she learned how to write during her time as an anchorite. Why does that matter? Well, because she's considered the first woman to write in English. And so did she actually write? Did she dictate these visions? And, and so forth is an interesting question. She definitely had the visions when the same year that Marjorie Kemp was born. And Kemp's manuscript is one of the few pieces of external evidence that we have for existence. Did you guys read uh, Marjorie Kemp in grad school, I assume? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time, but yes, I enjoyed it. Yeah, and she mentions meeting um, Julian of Norwich, who definitely had quite a reputation, probably in 1480. Okay, which of course means that the anchorites were not recluses, they had visitors, uh, they were influenced by the uh, desert fathers of the fourth century, but their seclusion was not the same. They lived in the town, but they were not a part of society. They were set apart for prayer, meditation, pursuing holiness, and having mystical union with God as their ultimate goal, which is why Julian is often called a mystic. They often, these anchorites... Hey, Christina? Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to tell you, and I hope you're not about to say this. Um, my medievalist husband was like, I'm going to tell you a few things that you should say. <laughs> um, okay. But he, about anchorises. So he said, um, he said to, David said to say that they um, would talk through a curtain. Yes. So people could come and talk to them, right, but not see them. But he also said that while they were not allowed to be with other people that they were allowed to have a cat yes she did have a cat she always thought was very sweet um and because a cat can't talk back to you but also is companionship and provides warmth in the winter um and i suppose someone else would take the cat out for her because she's not, not allowed to leave she, she has sworn not to leave her room but um because people would bring food as well so um but i he told me that today and i thought it was so precious it is precious <laughs> and there's a fact a a book called Julian's Cat, I think. I haven't read it, but yeah. Oh, man, yeah. that sounds like great. She definitely had a cat. And please do interrupt me at any time if you've got little tidbits to add in here, because I'm just... Well, that's all I've got. That's all I've got. Um, but living with a medievalist, you pick up all kinds of things. So. Oh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's so interesting that her cell, most anchorites, their cell was sealed by the bishop which didn't mean like walled in or something although some people apparently were walled in but closed off where they're not supposed to have um, entrance and you see people through a curtain right most accounts of her cell was that it was nine foot by 12 foot possibly not even heated which i find stunning and has something called a squint window which is the window into the church to the altar 
of the church where you could see the Eucharist and receive Holy Communion through, um, through the window. And so there's only one door into which food would be delivered and out of which the necessaries bucket would be taken. <laughs> and an interesting side note is she probably never had a bath during the 20 years that she was there. And so the cat would be important also, uh, Katie, to kill uh, rats and things because, of, you know, oh, this yeah. is the plague time, right? <laughs> so Absolutely. But we don't have any of the original stuff because the church, the Julian church was destroyed twice and the second time in World War II, having been bombed. So that's another interesting point. Another interesting question that remains is how did Julian have an English translation of the Bible? Because she more than likely didn't know Latin. And most scholars think she had a Wycliffe translation, which of course would have been expensive hand copied manuscript um, or borrowed one. And the oldest copies, there's no original copies of the Revelation of Divine Love, but the oldest we have dates to about 1500. So that's kind of just where we are in the Julian world. With regard to theology, I just want to briefly outline a few main points here before we get in the discussion on the text. Thomas Merton called her, along with Newman, the greatest theologian that ever lived, English theologian that ever lived. And there are a few agreed-upon points that, pe that scholars say are important about her theology. First, that she was a theological optimist with a great love of creation and especially a love for humanity. And love is the theme here, as we're going to talk about when, Katie, you talk about your section. She was a mystic uh, who wanted to do the transcending of the muck of history and to see Christ, to be one with Christ is the word she uses. So, that she had an Augustinian view of sin and evil that you know, evil is the absence of good, not a substance itself. And then finally, important for us, she feminized Christ in some ways and emphasized seeing the Blessed Virgin, both of which make her kind of a proto-feminist theologian and extremely important voice for today. And that's why I'm so excited that we're doing her right now because 2020 just seemed to me to be begging for Julian. So I first wanted to start out by asking what your experiences are with the text. When you first read it, um, what you think about reading it again in this day and age. So Victoria, why don't you start out with that? Sure. Uh, I first encountered Julian of Norwich in my first semester freshman year of college. I took uh, honors Brit Lit 1 and apologies to Dr. Stackhouse who taught that class. Literally the only thing I remember is that we had an assignment, a writing assignment to compare Julian to Marjorie Kemp. Uh, I don't remember what my thoughts were or anything I said in that assignment. That's my only impression from that first uh, encounter with the text. Uh, I read her again in grad school in a class about female mysticism, uh, which was very cool. early in my, in my, it was great. Uh, shouts to, to my mentor, Anne, who I've mentioned uh, many times on this show. She taught that class. Um, that was very early in my, like, mysticism is cool. Catholicism is cool. I'm very interested in the Virgin Mary kind of uh, period. And that was great. Um, next, I taught a Brit Lit survey for the first time where we read her uh, in some depth uh, short excerpts. I remember spending almost an entire day focusing on uh, the hazelnut passage um, that was 
teaching of at course. a Christian college. Yeah, it's that it's the most famous uh, passage, the hazelnut bit, and I'm sure we will talk about that a lot. Um, I remember being really struck by my students' uh, comments on that passage because I was teaching at an environment where a lot of students were really connected to uh, farms and coming from uh, rural places where they were really in touch with the changing of the seasons and growth and nature and all of those things. And they brought perspective to the text uh, that I really couldn't bring to it. And that was a really cool experience. Um, I also want to talk about the experience I've had reading this text now uh, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, the past two months or so, I've been dealing with a lot of really intense medical difficulties. Um, I've gotten a new diagnosis recently. It is hard. I have been in lots and lots of pain and trying to figure out the right medication and the right specialist and et cetera, et cetera, the past couple of months. And mm. let me tell you, reading this text that is very much about the attitudes that we should have toward bodily suffering while uh, trying to figure out how much uh, hydrocodone you should take <laughs> is, a, is a super interesting experience mm. uh, and, and one that has made me think about my body and pain and, uh, and how I experience physical pain in different ways. Wow, and maybe that, I'll talk yeah. about that more. But, yeah, uh, that's yeah. amazing. This is so much about actual uh, the body, really, about the body so much more than it is for other mystics, you know, at least in the mystical literature that I've read, there's much more in the body here. Yeah, and that's that's really one of the reasons that I'm I'm super drawn to Julie and in general, because she's not afraid to to dive into embodiment a lot. Not at all. Yeah. What about you, Katie? I knew a decent amount about Julian and had um because I in researching to teach church history um, at church to, in our ladies ministry. Um, I had, you know, obviously wanted to teach all the, you know, teach through the history of the church, but I, I, because it's me, I also wanted to pull out some, some specific kind of women from the history of the church and talk a little bit more specifically about them just because so often church history feels like man history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's, you know, um, cause so many, especially Protestants, so many of our prominent theologians, they're men. So, mm -hmm. um, so I had read a good bit about Julian, biographically speaking, to teach her to my to teach about her to my ladies. But this preparing for today was actually the first time that I've actually read through. I mean, maybe I maybe I read some some short excerpts back in undergrad, like Victoria mentioned. If I do, I don't remember reading it. Um, that was what so long ago. What surprised you? About but it? Um, this, um, you know, to be honest, I what surprised me the most is just the, her continued emphasis on words like sweet and precious um, and homely. I, you know, I just how, um, how really accessible. And I don't mean that in an easy to read way, though it's not hard to read, but um, she's so uh, warm. <laughs> I don't have another way to say it. Um, it's not a kind of mysticism that, that makes you, the reader, feel alienated. Like you can't enter into this very specific experience that she is having with God. Um, it's very all encompassing. Like she talks about us being enclosed in Christ. But to me, when you read this, you, I kind of feel enclosed with her and mm -hmm. what she's seeing, what she's talking about. And, and it's a very welcoming um, 
it's very welcoming. It's a very welcoming text. That's that's what I noticed the most when I was reading. That's really well put. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't read this until I taught it in a women writers class. I teach women writers periodically, and I did maybe my second year starting teaching at Wheaton. And so I taught it because I wanted to read it. And it really blew me away. But then I taught it again in that same class this last fall. And and I suddenly just was just like, wow, in the middle of the pandemic, we need this kind of theological optimism more than ever. We need somebody who's going to actually believe that all things are going to be well, you know, that God holds us in the palm of his hand. And the students really responded uh, to that. They loved, they loved the text and I loved teaching it. And so that's actually where we wanted to get started with the conversation is that beginning those really famous first five, 10 chapters. So Katie, do you have some thoughts about those? I do. And I'm going to just kind of, I'm going to give a very kind of brief just here's what's happening in each of those like mm-hmm. one sentence here's what's happening in this one um and then there's a couple of play and then there's a few places where i wanted to just mention something that was particularly interesting to me um but before i start just to to reiterate something i said a second ago which is that when i was reading through the first nine chapters i kept seeing the words precious sweet blissful was there mm-hmm. a lot um and uh throughout chapter one is is basically like a table of contents where she lists the different revelations and kind of what what she saw in each revelation and um then just and it kind of gives a description which that's nice so then that way if 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 listeners if you're encountering this text for the first time read chapter one and then you can kind of see if there's if you want to read straight through or if there are places you want to jump to um because you're you might find those particularly interesting um Chapter two, she talks about what she calls the three desires that she wanted, that she had, the mind uh, of his passion, which was to know more pain so as to empathize with Christ and his passion. Um, Number two, a bodily sickness. She wanted a bodily sickness, um, and this was because of contrition. Um, And she specifically wanted to be sick unto death, but not to actually die, to purge her sin and focus her on God more. Which, I mean, whoever asked for that? Like, you know, Victoria, you're talking about reading it while going through, you know— bodily pain um that she was literally asking for that from god it's mind-blowing yeah it Um, really is like when i was reading that i felt well at first i was like why (laughs) like you said why would you do that like that sounds ridiculous and then i thought okay i'm i'm feeling a little convicted by you know i'm doing so much woe is me i don't want to feel this pain um, maybe mm-hmm. I should I should use my pain as a spiritual discipline the the way that uh, that Julian is asking to. So she got me to yeah. reframe that a little bit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and which you know, yeah. I it was it was it was kind of crazy to read that. I, um, and then the last the last uh, thing that she wants is to have the three wounds, what she calls the three wounds, which are contrition, compassion, and steadfast longing for God. And she says in that chapter that the first two desires kind of faded away from her the desire to have the mind of his passion and actually the desire to have a bodily sickness faded but the third desire endured to have the three wounds of Christian compassion and stuff us longing I thought that was interesting because then in chapter three she talks about when she was sick unto death (laughs) that it happened after all um and that uh she kind of chapter three was interesting to me because I've read a decent amount about kind of medical stuff in the early modern and medieval periods. And the way she describes feeling like she's dying from the feet up is very accurate. Oh, really? And it's, 
Yeah, and it well at least to how people describe death back then. Um, wow. If you read um, the death of Falstaff, um, and which which Henry is it? Victoria, I can't remember. Um, if you read when Falstaff is sick and he's dying, they talk about oh your his feet are cold now. And then they'll talk about, I think that later on, it's like the cold is moving up his body. That's how they talked about death. Um, and so that one was interesting to me when she talked about that, because of course she didn't die. Right. Yes. Um, and so it was interesting to hear her narrating this, this process of, of dying from the feet up that um, I've seen in other texts before. Um, and then in chapter four is when she actually starts the first revelation. Um, and she, uh, that's where she first introduces this idea of God being homely with us. And she says, I full greatly was astonished for wonder and marvel that I had that he that is so reverend and dreadful will be so homely with a sinful creature living in wretched flesh. And um, she stresses the joy that she's getting. Um, she see The things that she describes seeing in chapter four are the blood dripping from the crown of thorns around his head. And also she sees and describes Mary there. And Victoria's going to talk a lot about that later, so I'm not going to, um, because she amplifies that later. Um, and uh, chapter five I think was my favorite. Not because of the hazelnut thing, though it is interesting. Um, in chapter five, she describes looking down into her hand and she's holding basically the universe. She says all that has been made um, as the size of a hazelnut in her hand. And, um, and, she's, and, and she is told this is everything. And she says um, that she, I marveled how it might last for me, thought it might suddenly have fallen to naught for littleness and I was answered in my understanding it lasteth and ever shall last for that God loveth it and so all thing hath the being by the love of God um, and I, 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 I love that too because it made me think of when we, like I don't know about you guys when I see pictures of earth that aren't taken from earth like pictures taken from mm -hmm. the space station or whatever and it looks so small yeah, and it's kind of scary it's really scary mm -hmm. uh, to me it's scary frightening um, because it's a tiny world of life and, uh, you know, a universe of nothing. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, of no life. And so it's interesting when then she has this experience of looking down in her hand and seeing the, everything that's made, not just, the, not just our globe, right? Everything and seeing it. And another point, she talks about seeing it from God's point of view, that she's seeing it from God's point of view. Um, that, that's really interesting. That that's probably the most famous thing in the whole text. I would mm -hmm. imagine. Um, but the part that I liked the best is when she says, I saw that he is to us everything that is good and comfortable for us. He is our clothing that for love wrappeth us, claspeth us, and all encloseth closeth us for the for tender love, that he may never leave us, being to us all thing that is good. Um, again, it's that holiness, comfort, um, it's like a warm hug. I you know, that that's that's how she describes the love of God. Mm -hmm. And it's um it's so, uh, it is so comforting. It makes me want to, and I, I might read some of that out. We're about to, I'm about to start a book club at church, but the first book we're going to read is this book, Good News for Anxious Christians by Philip Carey, which is fantastic. But, I love um, that book. It's so good. Oh, I, I know, right? Um, it's amazing. You should, you should absolutely read it, Christina. Um, he's a philosophy professor. Oh. Um, and uh, you will appreciate it too, because he kind of wrote it reflecting on years of interacting with his college students. Mm. Uh, um, and it's great. But we're going to do that book first. But I feel like, you know, if I was going to try to give someone something to read or to comfort them who is anxious, like that book is great. But so is the quote that I just read from Julian about mm -hmm. how God encloseth us and wrappeth us around and and, main, and maintains and sustains mm -hmm. everything. So she says that the three properties of this little universe in her hand are that God made it, God loves it, and God keeps it. 
Yes. Until, until the time. Um, and it's very simple, but it's a very comforting thing. Um, and then for the last few ones that I'm, I'm supposed to talk about, um, chapter six is interesting because she talks about prayer and how, um, they might be praying to his passion, his body, um, or his cross or to Mary or to the saints, but really all of those things exist because of his goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she says that she sees that it's more worship to God and more delight to God that it, we faithfully pray to himself of his goodness um, than if we took all these different means, different ways of praying, basically. That, um, And I don't think that, I don't think she's saying that you shouldn't ever pray to the saints or anything like that, but, but just kind of, she's trying to get, she's getting back at what's behind all of that, right? There's all these different ways that you could pray, these different objects for your prayer, the Virgin. I read it slightly differently and maybe because I, I do pray to Mary and saints too. Um, but the way I read it was that all of those things ultimately do have the same target, that they're all ultimately about worship all, all prayer ultimately is about worship, and we should remember that. That's that's mm. how I read it. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, well, and and see, that's that's a better because I don't have that perspective. Then I'm kind of trying to take just the words on the page and figure out what she's trying to mean. But I think your perspective, Victoria, is much closer to what she, the one that she has, because it's you're coming at it from the same tradition. Um, and then I the I feel like one of the best. This is where she talks about um enclosed being enclosed in christ and she if you were gonna do the pull quote right like if you were making a blog post she says for the goodness of god is the highest prayer and it cometh down to the lowest part of our need Mm. Uh, it quickeneth our soul and bringeth it on life and maketh it for to wax and increase in virtue for he hath no despite of that he hath made nor hath he any disdain to serve us at the simplest office that to our body belongeth in nature for love of the soul that he hath made to his own likeness um, if I was going to tell it to my kid, I would say, God cares about everything about you. God made you right. and made your body. And so he cares about everything that you do. He cares about your body. He cares about your mind and all the little things that concern you, they, they concern him too. Mm-hmm. And, um, that is beautiful. That's um, beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and it's such, it's, it's such a different experience from reading almost any other kind of theology. So is, isn't it? Oh, yeah. it is. Like, I mean, you know, and, and I mean, I, you know, I don't, I'm not averse to reading some Luther or, you know, or any, any other theologian, but it, rarely do I read theology and go, I feel hugged. <laughs> I feel, you know, so well I feel, put. I feel cared for, you know, yeah. um, even though, you know, I mean, she talks about God being master of all things. Yeah. Right. So this is not, you know, I mean, she's talk- talking about sovereignty. She's talking about God's absolute power over everything that happens, but in a totally different way, yeah. in a way that is motherly. We're, and I know you're going to talk about that later, but it, it's it's not in it's not in a kind of ultimate power sense. It's in a mother who looks after every little aspect of her children's lives, who looks um, on her child with love. Right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah that for as sure. a theological. Um, then, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Because all the little things are important, right? They and are. In, and in yes. some cases, she says the tiniest things are the most important. Yes. Um, which is, of course, you know, the entire point of the ministry of Jesus, too. So it uh, so is. Yeah. And this is also why I consider her the patron patron saint of poets, right? Because that attention to the created world as good and of given for us as like a hug, right? That 
Yeah. The, to me, is just in, inside of all of poetry. It's like you look at something and understand that it's a created good and that God loves it and God sustains it by his love, which is all there in chapter five. Well, I think if you can't be a poet, if you don't actually believe that um, <laughs> that things are sort of sustained by love and attention, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's so beautiful. Um, and it also and requires the imagination. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It, no, yeah, it, that's true. You're right. It does. Um, and I think that might be another reason I find this so fascinating is because I am not poetic or creative in that way at all. Really? Um, I, yes, I'm not. I, I'm the opposite of mystical. <laughs> um, and always, and always have been. I, it's just talk, true. And, I, and I'm not. I'm not. I don't get played with your Barbies, Katie. So when I was okay, so what? I was not a creative. I was not a creative child. So Victoria loves the story. When I was a little girl, one of my favorite things to do with my Barbie dolls was I had a big Barbie house, and I remember play. I would play a game where I would imagine that there was like a big blizzard coming. The Barbies were gonna get snowed in, and I would figure out where everybody would sleep. Like all the Barbies, all oh the my. little dollies. I would like find places for everybody. I like I was a logistical child, a practical child, um, not imaginative. And I'm still that way. I'm not imaginative and I'm not mystical. And so I think that's one reason I, I enjoy this so much is because it's not something that, um, um, you know, the my imagination is not always a, is not always a big part of my spiritual mm. life. And so reading something like this gives me images that I can imagine. But um, you are well, like her in that the loving mother came out there. That's true. Yeah. And, and that's true. And that is a way to connect. Um, and it, and I think and I appreciate that a lot. Um, and I, but I, yeah, the, the so that kind of warm creativity is something that I appreciate because I don't I don't have it. Um, and so I can you know, if I was if I sat down to write a, theolo- a theology text, I would probably sound more like, you know, standard run of the mill male theologian because just because that's how I write. I don't Aquinas. write. With, yeah, <laughs> I love Aquinas, mind you. But yeah. yes, a little dry. Um, I yes, mean, um, Aquinas talks about earthly, bodily things too. Oh, he does. He's, I'm not really trying not to slam. I'm not trying to slam Aquinas. I love him. You know, <laughs> he says when we're sad, we should cry and take baths and eat chocolate. I'm down for all those I'm things. I'm down for all that as well. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would. I would absolutely love that too. Which, and speaking of the images, so so chapter seven was fascinating to me because in chapter seven she gives this long, detailed description of the exact size of the drops of blood on the brow of Christ in her, and she compares them to things like herring scales and raindrops and things. Um, and I'm not going to go into that. But one thing that I, I, I did like, probably to me, the, one of the best parts about chapter seven is that she gives like a, a hypothetical example of um, God being homely with us. And she talks about a king being homely, like uh, personable with a poor servant. And she says that it, you know, wouldn't it mean so much more if, the king came and basically hung out with a servant and gave some face time and spent time together, that that would be much more of a comfort and much more of an honor to a poor servant than if the king gave him kind of fancy robes or gifts, but had a strange manner, meaning like didn't chat with him. Right. Held himself aloof. Um, um, and she kind of, um, so again, setting up that the greatest, the greatest gift of God is that he gives us himself that he's homely and personable with us. It's not the gifts he gives us. It's that he gives us himself and in a very personal way. And I, that I thought passage that passage spoke to my soul mm-hmm. so deeply. Yeah. I like, I, um, I don't super believe in, uh, personality test stuff, but, uh, I have done the five love languages test and it sometimes 
has good things to say. And my <laughs> love language is quality time. Mm-hmm. And hell, oh, yeah. Like, I, so I totally related to that. Like, even the way I pray and journal and my spiritual experiences are very, like, conversation and quality time based. Often when I pray, I do talk out loud uh, and, and pause to listen to God and things like that. So I, I completely, she's really speaking my language uh, mm. in this section. I love the focus on homely, too. You know, I'd love to do a little word study. I believe it is homely in the Middle English. I think that's the right word. My translation says familiar. And, of course, you got the heimlich and unheimlich, you know, from German. The, the idea of familiarity, being at home, right, with somebody, as opposed to being unfamiliar. Yes. I just yes. think it's profound. Yes, absolutely. And um, and the, the translation I was reading was very old, like from the early, like maybe in the turn, turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember David saying that he actually really liked that translation because he said so much of the words actually are untranslated. From the Middle English. They're still basically the same word as it was. Yes, from the Middle English, like homely, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's why it's like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, the only other thing I wanted to say, chapter eight, she kind of summarizes again, the things that she learned from the visions. But the one thing that I thought was really great is that in chapter nine, she kind of stresses that her vision is only good for her if she loves God, the better because of it. Um, and that it doesn't make her special. Right. She says, I'm not more special than other people. I'm not more beloved of God than people who didn't get a vision. This just happened to me. Right. And, and I felt like I needed to tell people about it. Um, she needed to tell my translation said she, she keeps talking about mine, even Christians, her fellow Christians, um, and, uh, that she feels like she should tell because it, what if it could benefit them? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was, that was really great too. That humility of, you know, this isn't about me. It's not about making myself important, mm-hmm. um, which, which fits. I mean, you know, who chooses to be an anchoress, not somebody who wants to be seen all the time and thought the most important, right? you know, um, but somebody who wants to serve, humbly serve, um, and kind of be, David almost described it as, he said, you know, when people would come to talk to them because they couldn't see them through right. the curtain, it was kind of like they were talking to the church, right. the church itself. Yeah. And or so to it's Emily almost, Dickinson, <laughs> which yeah, I actually yeah. think there's a lot of interesting parallels, but I won't go there. There really are. Um, yeah. And almost a, a subsuming of yourself into right. the church. Right. And uh, in that way, and it, it's again, also very humble, a very humble stance. But so, yeah, that's the things that I, I kind of picked up the most in those first nine chapters. I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the beginning and I'm glad they picked that to talk about because the the kind of the practicalities of her giving the summary of what all of the revelations were going to be um, and the ways that she kind of then systematically kind of amplified each one. I appreciated that because of my personality, the way that I like to read, but packed in with all that were all these wonderful images um, and descriptions uh, and examples that she gave all bound up with this idea of homeliness, courtesy, and just God's um, amazing intense love for us um, and how he made everything and because he loves it, and then because he loves it, he also maintains it. And that, that was kind of the big message I got. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's definitely the core. In fact, I've heard her theology described as develop, developing in a spiral fashion, where the theme is love, God's love for us, which enables us to love, period, right? Um, and always returning to that, spiraling back as she develops. Mm, yeah, and that I makes think sense. that's really accurate. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's from Dennis Turner's... Um, Theology of Julian Norwich, which is a really good book, where it's called Julian Norwich uh, Theologian, I think is the title of it. But it's a good book, and I love that image. 
So um, any responses, Victoria, to that or other things from that section that you were interested in? Uh, two quick things. One, I was just thinking of, of the word homely and, and how we use it now to, to mean ugly or not, right. not, not particularly physically attractive, which is interesting given all this talk we're doing about knowing and, and domesticity and mothers and, and the feminine sphere. Right. Uh, it, isn't it interesting how language kind of turns uh, on itself like that? Well, and it's so fascinating, yeah. too, because if your mother doesn't love you, right, you're in trouble. <laughs> a, a, a face only a mother could love. Right. right? Phrases, yeah. phrases like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was interested in that uh, kind of transfiguration of, of meaning there. Um, I also wanted to ask, uh, Katie, you were talking about um, – anchor rights being behind curtains and, and going to talk to them being like talking to the church. Um, did, did they, I assume not, uh, did they perform the sacrament of reconciliation? Surely not, but this was, you're saying a a similar process. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to, to say anything with confidence. I'm sorry. Because I mean, to to me, my when you were talking about that, my first thought was, well, yeah, it's it's like talking to the church because that's that's what uh, reconciliation, what going to confession is, right? Um, though I know a lot a lot of people um, perform it not uh, not shaded or not behind a curtain. Um, some people do. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure if they would con- if they would confess them or not, and I, I don't know. Presumably, I mean, as, as they were not priests. You know, that's I, yeah. I assume not. Um, well, and uh, in theory, I mean, I was going to say, who were they going to tell anyway, though? Like, I mean, even if they could see who was speaking with them because they literally never leave. But other people come to them. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't exactly know what people would come and say. Or they might have come and gotten a word. If they, And I didn't know until you said it, Christina, that they were kind of modeling that in some ways on the desert fathers, because th- that's what would happen. Um, I know with the desert mothers is people would seek them out in the desert mm-hmm. and, 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 and roll up and say, Hey, give me a word. Yep. They would, they would want to be told something, right? They weren't coming to tell something to the, the mother. They were wanting to be told something. And I'm assuming that it was probably a similar thing with anchoresses and anchorites. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's why Marjorie went there to kind of get some advice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. This is so great. You know, the homely bit also makes me think of the fact that God loves us in spite of us being as sinners, you know, that we are. And that is such one of the major themes of this book is sin and our kind of rolling in it. And God loves us like only a mother can. It's just fascinating. Well, this second, this next section, the seventh revelation, chapter 15, we don't need to spend a lot of time on, but I just really like this very short chapter in this showing this revelation because it's so human. She's basically saying, oh, I was meditating and I was filled with the certainty that um, that that God is good and that there's nothing on earth that's going to make me sad. And then that only lasted for a short time and then I felt bad. And then it went back and forth, she says, 20 times. And I just thought yes. this is such a great thing, isn't it? So relatable. So relatable. And she's saying, like, well, why is it like this? Why does he permit us to do this? Why does he permit us, she says in my translation, to be in woe sometimes? And she concludes that it's God's love that enables us to do that so that we would, in fact, learn 
how to move from suffering from our pain. Like pain and suffering aren't the same thing, right? I mean, you don't have to be a Buddhist to understand that pain is the external stimulus that causes you, you know, grief or suffering or whatever. Suffering is the response to the pain. And so meditation, you're supposed to learn how to not suffer from pain. And that's really what she's talking about here, that God wants to teach us to remind, to remind us that, um, that our pain is not forever and that suffering is a choice that we make uh, or not suffering is a choice that we can make. Not, it, it, you know, again, that is based on that distinction between pain and suffering, but I think that she nails it right there. What do you guys think about that? I particularly liked that she's very clear about the fact that pain and suffering aren't necessarily sinful in and of themselves. Correct. That they're just that they're just part of the human condition and even more than that, God often uses them for his good to help us draw near to him. Um, and like you said, she says God doesn't want us to focus too hard on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, therefore, it is not God's will that we follow the feelings of pain and sorrow and mourning for them, but that suddenly uh, that we suddenly pass over and hold us in endless enjoyment. So don't dwell on these things, but recognize them for what they are and use them to move forward. Right. Which is Augustinian too, right? Like use that experience to move closer to God. Right. Yeah, I, I found it super relatable. One thing I never thought about until you, you were talking, Christina, um, about that distinction between pain and suffering, it actually sounds a lot like the way, and I, this is going to sound like a wild tangent, but I promise it's not. It actually sounds a lot like the way they talk to you about labor pain and like a birthing class. Yes. No, it is. Exactly. Yeah, because they talk about the pain is like, it, 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 it's real. It's real. It's real yes. pain. <laughs> yes. But it's it doesn't mean you're dying, Right. It doesn't, it's not sickness. It's not like it's productive. It's supposed to be happening. And so a lot of that, a lot of those classes, a lot of that stuff is focused on getting you not to ignore the pain or pretend the pain doesn't exist, but to see it as something that's um, positive or that is, um, you know, is bringing forth a good result. Right. And is passing. And and is passing. Yeah. And is not, yeah. And is not, is not forever. Eventually the labor pains will stop. Right. Um, But I think that's, that's a great analogy because I I think like, yeah, like Julian says, and I mean, you know, that that metaphor is in scripture, too, when it talks about all the the world is in travail and labor until he comes again, um, you know, but seeing it that way as, you know, sometimes we have these times of pain um, and we feel like we're suffering um, and it can be a good reframe to remember that, um, one, it won't last forever, like you mm-hmm. said, two, so often he is using our pain to mold us and change us into uh, a version of ourselves that's more like him which mm-hmm. is the goal mm-hmm. um or, and 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 also that uh that he's i think often we feel the temptation is to feel unloved by god when we're in pain and suffering like yes. he doesn't care right um but she says my favorite quote from that from that revelation was freely our lord giveth when he will and suffereth us to be in woe sometime and both is one love like that mm-hmm. um, um it's all god's love is back of all of it and so, and we don't like that because we're human. So we think, why would, if you love something, why would you ever want it to experience any pain at all? Right. And especially but, as Americans, because we just, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if we think about that for more than a couple of seconds, we realize that's goofy because I know, like, I don't want my kids 
to never experience any pain exactly. at all because they won't turn out to be anything like a decent kind of person. Exactly. You know, they won't they won't grow. Their hearts won't expand. They won't learn to deal with strife and life if they don't go through any pain. Right. And so God does the same thing with us, right? He's the perfect parent. So he parents us in a way that um, allows us to go through pain and suffering and woe mm-hmm. as a way of molding us um, and shaping us to be more like himself and so i thought that was my favorite part of this chapter that was the moment where i was like okay i'm gonna stop complaining about the fact that my body hurts yeah when she said like it's about perspective and if we don't suffer we're not gonna understand we're not gonna really know the joy of god because we don't have anything to compare it to and when i read that passage i was like okay okay god like i can I can get through this. This physical pain is going to pass. Like that—that's when I knew. Um, that's when I, I really kind of felt Julian talking to me in that moment. That's so great. And, you and know, kudos to you, Victoria, for for applying that to yourself because I like I yes. didn't even think about that. And I like I've been I've been having some some medical stuff too lately, and it, I didn't even get to the point where I was like I should take this and turn it on myself. <laughs> I was not being a, enough self-examinatory this week because you're right. It's it's it does it's it's totally applicable to those situations, and we sh- that is how we should see it. That's the perspective we should. So great, and and you know I was thinking of course about how America Americans in general because I've written about this don't know how to suffer and we don't know how to learn from suffering and on the whole biotechnological revolution is just designed to escape suffering. And here she is saying, if you try to do that, then you're really not going to learn how to love God. And so it's so, it's so rich. So rich. Well, um, just in the interest of time, we, I would definitely want to get to the blessed mother on the 10th and 11th revelations. So, um, so Victoria, can you lead us down that route? Uh, Sure I can. So I'm going to talk quickly about chapters 24 and 25, which are very brief, uh, about three or four pages total. And in chapter 24, she is talking about uh, and, and getting a vision of a wound in the side of Christ. And I'm just going to read a couple of sentences here. Uh, Then with a glad cheer, our Lord looked unto his side and beheld rejoicing. With his sweet looking, he led forth the understanding of his creature by the same wound into his side within. And then he showed a fair delectable place and large enough for all mankind that shall be saved to rest in peace and in love. And I was really bowled over by that. I don't even know what to call it because it's it's a metaphor, but it's it's also kind of a metaphysical projection. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but what I loved about it is that what she says is that the metaphorical body of Christ, uh, believers in heaven, is resting in the metaphysical body of Christ. We are located in being in heaven, in the wound in his side. Mm. And that... Like, I've never heard heaven be talked about like that before, and I love it. I love it for a lot of reasons. One, um, it's hyper-embodied even in, uh, even in eternity. We, there's still that, that um, vision of embodiment, which I like, uh, because I think, you know, we can't, we can't worship an incarnational uh, Christ if, if we forget the dimension of embodiment and the fact that 
the entire church is enveloped in that place and there is room for everyone in peace and in love, uh, she says, is I think a, a fantastic extension of the the even Christianness that Katie was talking about earlier, the fact that Julian really sees all believers as equal and equally dignified mm -hmm. and valuable. And even her vision of heaven is like that. Um, I just, I thought that was an incredible passage uh, because it connects embodiment and love and resurrection and eternity and pain um, because it is, it's the wound in his side. Mm, it's, it's the, the wound. The, yeah. the part of, the part of the crucifixion that um, that makes him uh, cry out in pain. So mm. I, I don't know. I'm I'm being uh, not very articulate now, but I, I was really bowled over by that passage, and I was wondering what the two of you thought about uh, the wound in Christ's side being her vision of heaven. Katie, you know I. I mean, I can't really add anything else to that. It was it was very surreal, um, but I I I loved it. Um, particularly when she talked about you, you can see his cloven heart um, once you're inside the wound. Um, it made me think of, and I can't remember where I can't remember which text this is in or where this came from, but it made me think of different medieval texts that talk about his wounds crying out, like literally talking. Um, mm -hmm. crying out on behalf of the damned. Um, but I can't remember. I cannot remember what text that's in. Um, but that kind of personification of the wounds, though in this case it's not personification, right? It's, it's, it's uh, I don't know, um, going inside of. But, and, and, and I suppose it's, a, it's interesting too because it's a physical version or manifestation of that enclosed. We are enclosed. She keeps talking about enclosed and it's yeah. a metaphor, but in this case, literally, it's, it starts to become slightly literal. <laughs> Our language where you said metaphysical. Um, but yeah, I, I found it fascinating. I don't have much else to say beyond that. I was just, um, it was really interesting. Yeah, you know, you should ask David about it because I, my understanding is that a lot of medieval religious thinkers talked about the side hole of Christ and had different views of it. I never heard it described as heaven, but it'd be interesting if to hear what he had to say about that because I have seen and there are art that depicts the whole, you know, in the side of Christ that they, mm -hmm. they, they seem to get a lot of uh, metaphorical charge out of that. Um, I'm going to do some research and, and read more about that tradition. Thanks. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Um, Victoria, did you use uh, some thoughts about the, the Blessed Virgin appearance? Yes, I do. Um, I When I reread uh, that first chapter when Katie... Uh, that Kitty was talking about that lays out all of the revelations. Immediately I thought, I, I want to talk about the one where she sees the Blessed Virgin because uh, I, I'm not sure I'd ever read that passage before. And in my um, early study of this text, I don't remember any professor ever talking to me about the fact that she doesn't just see Christ, she sees Mary right. uh, as well multiple times. Mm -hmm. And um, as, as I am a new Catholic and my relationship to Mary is, is growing and evolving and I'm, uh, I'm learning a lot about her in the history of the church, I really wanted to read this passage. Um, I particularly enjoyed the fact that Mary fits 
really uh, smoothly into a series of trinities that appear throughout this text. There are uh, sets of three from beginning to end. Um, Katie already talked about the three wounds. Um, there's three phases of sickness. Uh, she sees the trinity itself, and then that has several other threes embedded within it uh, in that showing. Um, but I thought it was interesting that she sees the Blessed Mother three times. Uh, the first was as she was with child. The second was as she was in her sorrows under the cross. And the third is as she is now in pleasing worship and joy. So we get these three views of Mary from uh, three different points in her life and or history um, why those three points do you think? What what kind of picture do they give taken together? It's so fascinating. <laughs> First of all, just the fact of featuring a vision of, of Mary, right? I mean, my thought is just immediately drawn to all of the supposed appearances of Mary, right, in contemporary Catholic life, right, you know, across the globe and just wondering the, about that the people who see mary in a tortilla yes the jesus of the tortilla the mary of the tortilla exactly and and it's really interesting in that regard but also yeah the trinitarian thinking because so often if you read the sort of extended text the second person of the trinity is what is associated with motherhood um, meaning jesus as mother so it, you know, the mothering aspect of Mary associated with that is part of what she's doing there. And so interesting to me, God's um, being a mother to us. He is our mother, not just the church. Well, and, and both um, the, the first two pictures of Mary are very maternally centered. In yes. the first, she's with child. And in the second, um, she is mourning his death on the cross. Um, I, I presume after the uh, mother behold your son, son behold your mother right. um, passage with uh, uh, which is, is one of my favorite uh, Which you would definitely know Bible. because Stations of the Cross would, would feature right, that. Of course. Yeah. 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 And she would definitely have been very familiar with that whole thing. Yeah, so the featuring of her as mother is just so central to her theology. And that's, again, why I, I, I actually buy that maybe Julian was herself a mother. It just feels more like immediate, that that would be something that she would draw on. And she also, earlier in the text, um, not in this Mary section, but uh, earlier in the text, she talks about seeing herself uh, in this idea of Mary uh, and she alludes to uh, Mary's fiat, uh, may, it done to, may it be done to me according to thy will. Mm -hmm. And she says she wants to have that attitude. She wants to assent to God in that way. Um, and, and that's part of the early text in the preface to, to all the visions. So I, I thought that was cool, too, to have that particularly feminine kind of theological model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely want to move to that question because that is one of the extraordinary things about this text is its association uh, with motherhood, with Jesus as mother. 
I don't know if you guys had a chance to read any of those later chapters, but they're stunning. I mean, to really call her a proto-feminist is, is not, a proto-feminist theologian is not, you know, out of question here. I can't tell you the number of times I was reading those chapters and I said, no way, no way. Yeah, right, right. And then you're wondering, like, what would have happened if greater attention had been paid to this in the history of theology in general in the West, right? That maybe we wouldn't have had some of the problems that we've had if more people have just sort of read this carefully, you know, and thought about it more. Because we're so used to thinking of Jesus as kind of, you know, not only the model human, but kind of the model man. And she's just like having no problems whatsoever with metaphorically associating him with motherhood. It's stunning. Katie, yeah, do, no. do you, you have thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was uh, sorry. I was trying to find that those particular chapters. Yeah, they're um, chapters, so- depending on what you're like chapter 59 is a really good example. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm, yeah, let's see, okay, here we go. I was trying to get to, no, that's, it's, it's, it's getting through to which revelation is it in, and then finding oh, okay. the chapter inside okay. the revelation. Um, I yeah, think mine oddly 16. does not have the revelations, but yes, uh, it's let's so see. weird. I think it's maybe 16, 15, anyway, um, yes, I found that very surprising and interesting myself, and, but I think uh, one of the, the kind of, uh, I think one of the, the, the revolutionary things about it, I don't know about revolutionary, but, you know, in the medieval period, you're getting a lot, a lot, a lot of respect and devotion and adoration for um, Jesus's blessed mother. Um, but she's, she's, she's trans, I mean, she's, she has that, but then also she's looking at Jesus as a mother and as, as a mother, as the idea of mother, not as the blessed mother, right? Mm, right. And that's interesting to me. It's, it's not just about Mary. It's it's that she's taking, she's seeing the aspects of motherhood in general as being so positive that she feels free to apply them to Jesus as, as, as something that in no way would diminish him. Right. Um, and right. she uses yeah. the male pronoun at the same time. Yes. yes. Too. Which so yeah. this is different. This is different than and and no disrespect to to people who choose to use uh, the female pronoun. I, I don't want to enter into that uh, right. debate right now because it's an entirely different conversation. But I I would uh, use the word revolutionary because of that because yes. she um, mm-hmm. maintains the male pronoun and. Uh, our kind mother, our gracious mother, for that he would all wholly become our mother in all things. Mm-hmm. He took the ground of his works full low and full mildly in the maiden's womb, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, I don't know what that is if not revolutionary. I totally agree. I think it is revolutionary. Um, in the chapter 59 that I was referring to, let me just read this little bit here. Thus Jesus Christ, who does good against evil, is our true mother. We have our being from him where the basis of motherhood begins with all the sweet protection of love that accompanies it endlessly. And so this is going back to what Katie was talking about. This is like a big theological hug. You know, Jesus loves us like only our mothers love us. And his love is the basis of motherhood itself, right? So think about how that elevates motherhood. Yeah, absolutely. That motherhood is kind of like, in a sense, because of the the insane love that you have for children, it's not the only kind of love, of course. It's just an insane, almost irrational love that that's the kind of love that Jesus has for us, is what she's saying. 
which is stunning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I finally found the bit that I was that I was looking oh, at. Oh, good, and, good. Well, just uh, that. Uh, let's see. Um, Evermore into doomsday, he feedeth us and further with us, even as that high sovereign kindness of motherhood and as kindly need of childhood asketh. Um, and he uh, she and, and that one's interesting too because she's talking about our childhood in relationship to his his motherhood. Um, and, uh, further up. So, uh, he says, uh, yet we, yet be we not a dread of this, save in as much as dread may speed us, but meekly make we our moan to our dear worthy mother and he shall besprinkle us in his precious blood and make our soul full soft and full mild and heal us full fair by process of time, right as it is most worship to him and joy to us without end. And of this sweet fair working, he shall never cease nor stint till all his dear worthy children be born and forth brought. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it's uh, and, and but it's not weird. Like it, it's it sounds so kind of alien because we're not used to seeing it talked about in this way. But um, the Bible talks about you know God being the author and perfecter of our faith, of you know the Holy Spirit kindling or birthing faith in us, and us then being brought forth, nurtured, grown in grace and faith until we are sanctified, fully sanctified. Mm-hmm. And so it's to to extend that to the metaphor of a mother who gives birth to her child and then nurtures that child, mm-hmm. raises it up and to adulthood. I, you know, it's not it's not it's not a, a, a far leap to say mm-hmm. that Jesus is, is like a mother. Um, it is interesting. Uh, it is interesting to me that she's but I, and it's not nonsensical that it's Jesus, because in some ways I feel like you could also describe the Holy Spirit that way. Yes, and because I Holy feel Spirit like is literally, it's literally in us. We we get that more, right? We we get yes. when yeah, we, we get feminine God. Yep. Typ- typically, we get it um, attributed to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So that's that's one reason I f- I was so shocked by this. It's shocking. I I feel like doing that for Jesus rather than the Holy Spirit is less common. It's a lot yeah. less common. That makes sense. Um, well, and, and it's really interesting if you think then about, I, I forgot until you said it, Christina, that Marjorie Kemp went to see her. Because this is fascinating then that, that you know, Julian's talking on and on about, about Jesus being like our mother um, or being our mother, right? Where in Marjorie Kemp, it's flipped, right? And so she's imagining herself caring for the infant Christ. Mm. And there's this obsession of Marjorie Kemp with mothering the baby Christ. Huh. And it's almost like a flip. It's like a... It's like she turns the metaphor on its head or something. It's just interesting um, that that's the, the different ways that they were playing on ideas of motherhood and yeah. um, and childhood in their kind of contemporaneous, roughly contemporaneous texts. Yes. No, they are. Wow. No, I didn't know that. I don't remember that about Marjorie of Kemp. So that's interesting. That's it, that's right, isn't it, Victoria? Doesn't she talk about like holding and cuddling the infant baby Christ? And like, I think, feel like maybe she nurses him. Imagine herself nursing him. I feel like maybe she nurses him because yeah. there's, I might be making that up, but there's that part with the baby, and then there's the part that everybody remembers where she's like talking to her husband and essentially says like, "Can't sleep with you to oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. to involve with Jesus." Yeah. So, yes, so there's sort of yes, both that's right. both ends of those of that thing. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Wow, I forgot about that that part until you said it. That's funny. <laughs> 
at any rate, I think we can agree that this move that she is making is quite radical. And it's interesting the way that she sometimes works out that Trinity. It's, it's the second person of the Trinity being associated with mercy and with wisdom as well at various different points where she talks about the motherhood of Jesus. And so that's right, because wisdom has that practical element, almost embodied intelligence, right? So there's wisdom. And then a mercy, of course, is the, the just gentle tenderness toward somebody who deserves to be punished, which is more associated with mothers. And b- both historically yeah. feminized virtues. Feminized virtues. Correct. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And she's giving them to Jesus and uh, elevating all women, I think, thereby and elevating body embodied experience as well, which is just amazing. Yeah, agree. I, I love all of it. I was so, so edified by um, her her reading of, of Jesus in this text. It made me feel, as you said, better about myself and my own embodied experiences. And I think that's really part of what's, what's so important about her, especially for today. Um, that, the hope, the, the sense of um, what you do in the ordinary and the everyday matters, that being a woman is, is significant and good. <laughs> right? All of these things have so much to contribute to our contemporary understanding. Such so great. Are there any other things that we left out that you want to get to before we go to the passing on segment? Um, the only thing I wanted to say that we that that I haven't said already and that we didn't talk about is is just another a comforting quote <laughs> that doesn't talk about homeliness at all. But so there's this moment in chapter 34, um, and I don't to be honest, I don't even remember what else was happening in chapter 34. But I wrote down this one sentence because it was so amazingly stabilizing and comforting. So this is what she said in chapter 34. She says, "Our Lord God showed that a deed shall be done, and He Himself shall do it, and I shall do nothing but sin and my sin." And shall not hinder his goodness working. Yes. Um, and, and I was so comforted by that. And it, and again, not in the same way. It's not the God encloses, closes you in his love and clasps you. And this is almost like, this is a little more removed, right? Because what she's essentially saying is God will accomplish his work um, without, he doesn't need you. But also nothing that, no sin of yours, nothing you do can can make his plan wrong, can make right. it not work. Right. You know, he will accomplish the work and all you're going to do is sin, but it's not going to matter because he's going to accomplish it, which to me is very comforting and also freeing, I guess. Not mm. not like free to sin. Oh, let me go sin no, right. um, all I want. But just that because um, I think sometimes growing up, which and I thankfully my parents never did this to me, but growing up in kind of free will Protestant environment, sometimes you get this feeling that like you can screw up God's plan. Right. Like you can you can step awry. Like you can ruin God's plan for your life if you make the wrong decision. Right. That that discourse is kind of some that sometimes was kind of there in the background. And so having if if you grow up with that kind of in the background, then reading something like this is amazing, you know, to to have to be reminded that we're just creatures. So no matter what we do, we can't undo or ruin God's ultimate plan because he will do it. And I, I, I really liked that. That was one of the things I wrote down as a, a favorite bit that uh, I wanted to remember for later. It's a, a different kind of uh, reading on the hazelnut passage, right? It's it's a different kind, but no less important kind of smallness that I, I think we need to remember. Uh, you saying that passage made me think of what the priest said to us before our first confessions when we were all nervous about, like, well, 
you know, I, I don't want to tell you everything I've done because I'm embarrassed and and won't you remember? And he was like, you know, first of all, I see dozens and dozens of people a day. <laughs> right. Secondly, uh, you're not inventing new categories of sin. Like, I've, <laughs> I've heard it. Everyone is that you're the same. You're not special. Not inventing new categories of sin. So that is that. A, a worthwhile reminder, I think, for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know what else is interesting, too? It just And when you were both talking, I, this occurred to me. You know how we typically think of a family where the father is being sort of judgmental and, and really wanting to hold the child to the account, and then the mother kind of stepping in going, well, it's not that bad. It's okay. You know, Joey is, is fine. I'm still going to, we're still going to love him. You know, like a, a mediator, how Jesus is our mediator to the father is, is more like a mother. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't either until I was just suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me that when we typically think of the way that families usually go, right? It's the father who lays down the judgment and the mother who kind of pleads for the child in some ways. Yeah, not, not always, but sometimes. Not always. I, but, and, and I definitely think that's the kind of the traditional idea of, you know, uh, of family, like as being more, um, more those kind of, the, the dad is more of like the disciplinarian, I suppose. Yeah, um, right. You know. It's just so interesting that she's just not afraid even to embrace Jesus as that. I just think that's fascinating. All right. Are we ready to do our passing on segment? Yeah, I think we are. All right. Very good. All right, Victoria, why don't you lead us out? Okay. Uh, So I actually chose to be on this episode. Uh, I didn't know, Christina, that you were going to propose an episode on Julian until I looked at the schedule for this semester. And my immediate thought was, oh, I have to be on this episode because uh, I want to tell people about this recommendation that I'm about to recommend, uh, which is a song uh, from a Christian singer-songwriter that a lot of you may have not heard of, but you should all go check out, a guy named Bill Maloney. And on a recent uh, Christmas album, he wrote a song called Julian, uh, and the subtitle is It's December and I'm Lost. Um, It appears on a Christmas album, but is very much an Advent song. Uh, It's a song about despair and waiting and that time in between uh, the celebratory time of Christmas. And the chorus goes, It's December and I'm lost Between Advent and Holocaust It's all just static for the heart self Ah, blessed Julian Would you pray for me? In my ear, it all shall be most well. Yeah, most well. Most well. Uh, and there are a couple other quotes from, from Julian in the song as well. Um, but that is a song that was uh, a comfort to me this year in Advent. Like, mm everyone i had a really rough 2020 um and this song just gave me hope and comfort and let me remember 
that uh, I wasn't alone in my suffering. And I know that's something that Julian does uh, for a lot of people. Mm. So check that song out. Uh, Julian, it's December and I'm Lost by Bill Melody. Sounds amazing. Definitely have to do that. Katie, what you got? So I'm very, I'm very sorry. My, my passing on this week has nothing to do with Julian, but it was an article that I read yesterday, the day before, and I thought was really great, um, particularly because it kind of refers back to some stuff we talked about in the past. So what I am uh, recommending today is an article at Jezebel called The Rise and Fall of Joss Whedon and the Myth of the Hollywood Feminist Hero. And uh, it's a slightly longer read um, written by Kelly Faircloth. And I really, th- there's been a whole bunch of stuff that has come out lately about Whedon. Um, and it's interesting to me, not just because I like really, really enjoy some of his TV shows and movies, but also because we've talked about him in the past on the CFP. And, and um, we will be revisiting this in light yeah. of recent events. There will, listeners, be an episode yes. uh, yep. about mm-hmm. recent revelations about Joss Whedon. It's in the works. I am gutted. Okay, sorry, Katie, keep talking. Oh, no, that's fine. And yeah. As well, we should. Well, then maybe uh, I'll, I'll recommend this now, but maybe we could read it and talk about it later if we do an episode. Um, it's a really good read. If you kind of want a rundown of uh, not just the recent things that have come out about Whedon, but ways that he's positioned himself in the past, the kind of um, rhetoric of himself or the way he's positioned his own kind of public feminist identity through time, this article is really good. Because it kind of reviewed, there, you know, there were things that it talked about that I had never heard about, like speeches, different speeches he made or words he'd received, things that were kind of slowly bolstering that kind of feminist cred, um, including the fact that he, you know, would talk about not liking the term or, you know, would kind of like be sort of self-deprecating, like, well, shouldn't everybody be feminist, you know? Um, we actually did a past episode on that one speech he gave about not liking the word feminist. So Yes, uh, okay. We're definitely um, yeah. going to revisit this, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so check it out, um, listeners. If you um, if you are a Whedon fan and you're really sad, you might it might be of interest to you. But also, if you don't know much about Whedon and you're like, why is what's happening? Why is he canceled? Read this. This will talk a lot about that. You know what's happening, what's going on in the past, what's happening now in the present with him, and why it's all such a big deal. So that's um, that's my recommendation: the rise and fall of Joss Whedon and the myth of the Hollywood feminist hero. That's a great recommendation. And I also love your Britishism there, Victoria. I was gutted by that too. <laughs> Such a gutting thing. Uh, my recommendation does have to do with Julian of Norwich, who I mentioned that I think of as the patron saint of poets. Uh, and one poet very much influenced by her hazelnut uh, would be Denise Levertov, who is a poet, a favorite poet of mine. And she's got a slim stocking stuffer collection of poems. I've probably recommended them before, but I will do that until every single person in America has a copy of this. The Stream and the Sapphire, a collection of, of um, poems on religious themes. And she's got, I think, five or six poems about Julian in this selection, and they're excellent. They will help you to understand why it's a poetic and imaginative move to look at the hazelnut with God's eyes um, as all that he has made and that he loves and cares for. So I'm really excited. I want more people to read Levertov. So there you go. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at the Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes, the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. 
The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Katie Grubbs, I'm Christina Bieberlake. Tune in two weeks when we'll discuss the Book of Esther. Until then, as Julian would probably say, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.